Hey, I'm Jesse. We're continuing through Nehemiah chapter 9, and it's an incredible story as they sing. As the Israelites sing this hymn, they're recounting God's goodness to them, God's faithfulness to them. Oh, it's awesome. It starts off in the heavenlies, moves on to the story of Abraham, thanks God for his goodness toward them in the Exodus, thanks God for his goodness toward them through now as we arrive, even their unfaithfulness. I'm so, I'm, I'm so taken with these lyrics because the original people about whom they're singing didn't get it right, but evidently the great, 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 great grandkids of those people do get it right. I find that, I find that amazing because they're, they're talking to God about Mount Sinai. And like, meanwhile, the Israelites are at the bottom of Mount Sinai, partying it up and forsaking God. They're thanking God for all these awesome things. But we know having read Genesis that in th these stories didn't end perfectly. God was perfect, but the people involved weren't perfect in a bit of a meta moment, you're going to see that even here in the book of Nehemiah, it's not going to end quite perfectly. There's still going to be some tension. Okay, spoiler. Sorry if you thought this was like the <laughs> utopian moment. It's not quite, but it's still awesome. And in the end, it's never God who fails. It's always going to be human error. It's always going to be our sin-stained natures in the struggle amidst our own sanctification, wherein our flesh wins sometimes that uh, we botch stuff. We're never going to experience perfection this side of heaven, but God has been perfect the entire time. And this song captures that. So we have praise to God for his provisions for the ancient Israelites through the Exodus. And now in verse 16, they acknowledge the human side of those same stories. But our ancestors acted arrogantly. They became stiff-necked and did not listen to your commands. They refused to listen and did not remember your wonders you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love, and you did not abandon them. Even after they had cast an image of a calf for themselves and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt. And they had committed terrible blasphemies. You did not abandon them in the wilderness because of your great compassion. During the day of the pillar, the pillar of cloud, never turned away from them, guiding them on their journey. And during the night, the pillar of fire illuminated the way they should go. You sent your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouths. You gave them water for their thirst. You provided for them in the wilderness 40 years, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out. Their feet did not sweat. Isn't this amazing? Isn't this song incredible? It's acknowledging how our ancestors, they really botched it, God but you were just so compassionate toward them. You were so gracious toward them. How many of you guys saying like, these people are singing my testimony? 
You know, because like, I've botched it so many times, I've messed up so royally, and God's always been just so merciful to me, so gracious to me. He's always fed me, he's always given me clothes to wear, he's always given me a place to live, and even in the darkest days, like I always had something, always had water to drink. I, I, God was just compassionate and abounding in his faithful love to me, even when I was unfaithful to him. You see what I mean? It's a different covenant and a different context, but it's the same God. It's the same God. Verses 16 through 21 are, man, like they're a sermon. And I, I'm going to draw a little bit from this text in my sermon this weekend. Um, and I know that I'm gonna, it's going to be a little bit redundant, but like, uh, guess what? It's going to bless you. <laughs> Sometimes repetition is good and even necessary. He goes, he says in verse 16, our, our ancestors acted arrogantly. Jesse, what does this stiff necked thing mean? Like what's going on? Did they need like some muscle relaxers? What does that mean? So I, uh, I grew up in a family that owned horses and uh, my first horse that I had was Poncho and he was like this, uh, this sweet old paint, meaning it was like white with brown spots on him and, and everything. And he was, he was just old, he was easy going, he was not very fast. Uh, but he did everything I told him to do, you know, like you could always put any kid, any baby you wanted up on Poncho's back and Poncho barely even noticed that we were there. <laughs> and like when you would turn the reins, you know, you had to like have, have a bit in his mouth and the bridle would hold on his head and the reins would go around his neck and you could turn him this way, you turn him that way. And wherever you told him to go, he would just go. That's Poncho. The next horse I had after that was much more of what we call a stiff necked horse. All right. And this horse put me in the hospital, uh, I think twice. I know I had at least one concussion. I actually won a, an award in the little sort of like local rodeo association that we were a part of. I was a little kid, I was in elementary school, but I got bucked off this horse and put in an ambulance uh, and like about got knocked out and stepped on and kicked and everything. This is just a mean horse. And he was very stiff necked because the same bridle, same bit and everything, same reins, all that stuff, you would tell the horse which way to go and he'd be like, no, I'm going this way. No, I'm going that way. And I weighed all of like 45 pounds. So there's not much I could do with this stupid horse. So when I read the word stiff necked, that's what immediately what my mind goes to is my childhood trying to, you know, I grew up on Poncho, Poncho would go anywhere I wanted to go. There were a couple other horses that I'd try to tell them where to go and their necks would go the opposite direction. This is God steering the Israelites where they should go and they're stiff necked. No, I'm not going that way. No, I'm not abiding by your commands. No, I'm not worshiping you only. No, we're going to forget your goodness toward us. That's what I think of when I read the word stiff necked. They became stiff necked and did not listen to your commands. You're trying to pull the reins this way and the horse is like, nope, I'm going left. They refused to listen and did not remember your wonders you performed among them. They became stiff necked and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. This is, uh, this is fascinating because it's the, it's the back to Egypt committee. If you remember the story in, uh, in Numbers 14, verse four, this was shocking for Joshua to behold. I've seen that God has this way of, God has this way of just remaining faithful in every circumstance, but the devil has this way of revising history throughout those circumstances. There are times when God will do something awesome. And then in our memory of it, the devil will revise history and you'll forget how great that was. But then the devil will also glamorize history. He will glamorize 
history. There'll be a season in your life where you were actually running from God. And the devil will show you that season. Maybe a photo will pop up on your smart TV and the devil will be like, see how good you had it back then? And he's glamorizing a time in your life that was actually quite miserable and terrible and you were running from God, but he'll glamorize it. He did that in the minds of the Israelites about their slavery for crying out loud. Remember how good that was? He like glamorized slavery. Like God had miraculously delivered them through the plagues, through the parted Red Sea, fed them miraculous bread from heaven. And they got tired of the bread. We're tired of the bread that you're feeding us miraculously from heaven, God. We remember back in Egypt, we got to eat, we got to have like garlic and rosemary and delicious sodium and MSG and it was awesome. And, and they're complaining about the menu, the miraculous menu. Think about that for a minute. They're complaining to God about the food he's giving them miraculously. They're complaining against Moses and his leadership. And when they arrive on the shore of the Jordan River, it's at flood stage and everybody's in despair. They send a few spies across, despite the raging river, they come back with a report of giants in the land. Only Joshua and Caleb are the ones who say like, God brought us here, God can do this, we can take these guys. But it's shocking for Joshua to behold when these people rise up and the back to Egypt committee almost gets their way. I cannot believe it. it's a shocking moment. And Moses and Aaron bow down before the back to Egypt committee. The devil had glamorized their slavery and Moses and Aaron kowtow to the demands of the back to Egypt committee. Joshua witnessed the failure of his mentor right then and there. And it impressed upon him. It's an important moment. It's being recounted in this song and rightly in a way that is confessing. What do you do with that moment? Well, the way that they, the way that they canonize it is through thanking God for his forgiveness. Here's what, here's what they continue in verse 17, but you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. And you did not abandon them. That is a sermon in itself. The second half of verse 17, that's amazing. What do you do with that moment? God delivers them from slavery and they're like, we want to go back to slavery. And what do you do? It just, you know that they're being idiots. Okay, look, I forgive you. Joshua, you step up, take over, lead them into Canaan. God just, God's compassionate. He's gracious. He's very slow to anger and he's abounding in faithful love. This has been God's character all the while. God takes sin extremely seriously. He feels just as severely about sin today as he did in the Old Testament. Okay, when Phineas skewered people at the entrance to the temple and God commended him for it. Like God feels the same way about sin today that he did the day that he flooded the earth. It's, just, it's not that God just lets sin slide. It's that he's gracious, that he's compassionate, and that he's slow to anger. Are you similar to the ancient Israelites, yearning for days of past sinful revelry as though they were good, 
mistaking the graciousness of God and the compassion of God for license to sin. Wake up, heads up. God is slow to anger, but he does discipline his children. He does. You may have gotten away with it and then gotten away with it again, gotten away with it again and gotten away with it again, gotten away with it multiple times because God's very slow to anger. God's showing you grace. He's being compassionate on you, but watch out because you're about to get your tail kicked by the discipline of God. Do not mistake God's compassion and his grace for license to sin. Like Romans 6, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? By no means. We died to sin. How can we go on living in it any longer? Some of you are, some of you are running out of time within the grace of God and you don't know it. God did not abandon them. He did not abandon the faithless Israelites. He did not abandon them in the wilderness because verse 19 says of his great compassion. He has great compassion. He has great mercy. Verse 20 is so cool because it's a glimpse of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Did you catch this? The fact that spirit is capitalized in verse 20 in the ancient Hebrew. You sent your good spirit, the text says, right? Your, your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths. You gave them water for their thirst. You provided for them in the wilderness 40 years and they lacked nothing. Man, I've been through seasons like that. I'm kind of in one now where even in a wilderness time, you still don't lack anything. Like even though you may no longer be, you may no longer be in a time of prosperity in your life, but even while you're in the desert, God's still gonna meet your needs. You, you, don't, you can't point to anything that you lack. The things that you lack would probably be just luxuries and indulgences, if you're really honest. What are you lacking right now? Well, I'm lacking a Maserati. Are you really lacking? I'm lacking a five-star cruise for a month. <laughs> yeah, but is that really lacking anything? Like, what are you actually lacking right now, even if things are lean? Just as the Israelites were in the desert, God still provided for them. They didn't lack anything. This also evokes Psalm 34, this prophetic psalm of Christ on the cross. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. That we lack nothing. And we see in Psalm 23 as well that I, he makes me lie down in green pastures. Right? The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. I shall not be in want. He cannot complain. It says their clothes did not wear out. Their feet did not swell the small luxuries that they probably didn't even fully appreciate at the time. God has always been good to his people. Even if times are lean, God's going to provide for you. Even if you're in rebellion, God's going to be slow to anger. He's going to be compassionate, abounding in love. When you look back on your days with God, the end of your life, you'll see all the times which you and I both have forsaken God and gone on to other things and rebel against God and God just lovingly, compassionately provides for us, brings us home, shows us grace. I've been under the discipline of God. It's no fun place to be. Maybe you've been there too. But as a Christian, as one of the people of God, as you can best relate to the Old Testament context of God's covenant chosen people, you and I both know what it's like to be God's child and as a result be exempt forever from the wrath of God. The wrath of God is in hell in eternity apart from him. The discipline of God is actually good. It's God disciplining his people. All the while, we see God good 
and compassionate and gracious and patient with his people. He has been this way with his people in the old covenant and he's with you that way now. Turn this song into your own song. It's like a psalm in the middle of Nehemiah, isn't it? Take it and turn it into a prayer that you thank God for. Let's do that right now. I'm gonna pray with my eyes open. God, you are a forgiving God. You are gracious. You are compassionate. I'm so thankful that you are slow to anger and that you abound in faithful love, that you do not abandon your people even after your people would abandon you. You did not abandon your people in the wilderness and you have not abandoned us. Because of your great compassion, oh God, you don't abandon your people. God, you have sent your Holy Spirit to us in the New Testament since pouring out on Pentecost and upon Cornelius's house and Acts and upon the Redemption Church today, you poured out your spirit to instruct the ancient Israelites. You've never withheld food from our mouths. You've given us water when we're thirsty. You provided for your people in the wilderness for 40 years. They lacked nothing. You provided for us. We've never lacked anything. God, even when we didn't thank you, you're still good to us. Our clothes haven't worn out. Our feet haven't swollen. You have always been good to us. So thank you for your compassion. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for being slow to anger with us. Thank you, God, for not abandoning us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.